Every book tells two stories. The first is the tale inside the page. The second is a story about its reader. Each book that we choose to keep on our shelves tells a chapter in the story of our lives. So join me, Alex Cool, as I speak to authors, illustrators, publishers and booksellers about their shelf life. My guest on Shelf Life this week is Jennifer Saint, whose debut novel, Ariadne, is available now. Uh, Jennifer, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, would you, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself and about Ariadne? Um, yeah, so um, I am a debut author, as you just said. My first novel is Ariadne, and it tells the story of Theseus and the Minotaur, from the perspective of the woman who made it happen, the woman who saved the hero. Um, so it follows Ariadne and her sister Phaedra from their childhood, growing up in the palace of Knossos with the Minotaur, uh, bellowing in the labyrinth beneath the palace floors, to when Theseus, the hero of Athens, arrives to kill the Minotaur, and Ariadne has to decide whether to betray her family in order to help him. Wow, we might go into this in a bit more detail as we go through, but what was it that inspired you to do this retelling? Um, so I was inspired to write it. Um, so I'd always been interested in Greek mythology, and I think we will talk about that a little bit in this in this conversation as well. Um, I read classical studies at university, and that was when I first read Ovid's Heroides, and he actually, he was a Roman poet writing in the first century BCE, and he wrote letters from the female characters in mythology, these kind of sidelined, overlooked secondary characters, giving them a voice. And Ariadne and Phaedra both feature in the Heroides. So I think that probably planted the seed, but it was years and years later um, that I came back to it. And I think it was really when I was reading Greek myths to my own children, and we read Theseus and the Minotaur, and Ariadne's got such a, she's, her part of the story is just kind of passed over so quickly in a lot of those retellings that um, I remembered of it and I thought she she needs somebody to tell her story and when I looked nobody seemed to have done so I decided to write it. Brilliant uh, that's a perfect perfect reasoning for doing it. Um, so uh, I've asked you to pick seven titles uh, that have changed or influenced your life in some way. Uh, first of all, a couple of bits of admin to sort out. Are you a big reader? Yes. So I've always been a voracious reader. So I've um, read, um, I mean, the books that I've chosen are books that I have read dozens of times over and over again because I'm a big rereader. So whenever there's, you know, there's lists come out of like how many of these hundred classic books have you read, I always score really badly on them. I would say that I'm not widely read, but the books that I love um, tend to disintegrate because I read them so often. So that's a little bit then about how you chose them, but how did you find it whittling down your list of well-loved books to just seven? Yeah, really hard. Um, oh yeah, I did have a backup list um, and I did agonise it over it but I think it's because it's not your seven favourites it's the seven that have had an influence on you that did make it easier to choose actually well then let's start with your first book which is it okay so the first book I chose is the tale of Troy which is um, a retelling of the Iliad and the Odyssey 
that goes beyond basic theory of ethics. Um, so it's very detailed retelling of Greek mythology. It was um, published in 1958 and it's by Roger Lansalin Green. I chose The Tale of Troy because it's a book that I read. Um, so I read it when I was a child. I think I was about eight years old when I read this book. And I am fairly sure that I remember, my memory is not very reliable, I'm going to say now. I'm fairly sure that I remember quite vividly reading this on holiday in Greece. So my parents used to take us on holidays um, to Greece every summer. Um, it was a very middle-class childhood. So obviously all holidays have got to involve going to ruins and learning something. Otherwise, it's not a holiday. Um, and I, I really loved that. So when we went to Greece and we'd go to like kind of ancient ruins and you'd see like crumbling pillars and old mosaics. And I really, that was when I really kind of fell in love with history and ancient history and that feeling that you could be a part of this. Well, in fact, I'm going to quote from the introduction to A Tale of, Tro of Troy that was written by Michelle Paver, who's um, another writer. She said, you become part of a chain of storytelling that stretches back almost 3,000 years into the past. And that is exa exactly sums up why I love Greek mythology so much, because it's survived for all of this time. And we're telling the stories that were being told 3,000 years ago. And I just, I find that just magical. I found it very interesting when I was reading Ariadne because uh, th there were I I've I've known of Greek myths, um, but I've never been massively into them. So I was I was surprised when, um, for instance, Icarus turned up in the story of um, uh, the Minotaur, and it's it's very closely linked in in your book. Is that how it is told? in Greek myth as well. Yeah, so because, and I think because it's just tradition of oral storytelling, one myth just leads so easily to the other and they're all really, really intertwined. So in the tale of Troy, it's a very, it's a very traditional retelling and it is for children. Um, so it's, so it covers all of these, all of these familiar characters, the Olympian gods, the heroes, um, you know, all stories that you'll be familiar with. It does it in an age-appropriate way, so there's, it's euphemistic, it's, you know, it's used married many mortal women, it says, um, not really what happened. Um, <laughs> but when I, so I reread it um, in preparation for this, because I hadn't looked at it really for so long, and um, because, like we were saying, you didn't ask me to choose my sort of seven favourite books, it's the most influential, and I think this is really what started a love of Greek mythology for me. Um, but when I read it again, I'm surprised by how how um how much of it really is fixed in my mind. So um Lance Helen Green gets Theseus spot on, describes him as violent and impulsive, and tells these kind of stories of Theseus's less heroic exploits. And he also completely exonerates Helen. So it's a tale of Troy. Helen is this beautiful woman who famously launched a thousand ships. The Greek she ran off with the Trojan Prince Paris and the Greek army went after her to get her back. Um, and in this version, you see into you see from Helen's perspective, she has a chapter to herself um, where she's completely vindicated. She was enchanted by Aphrodite, according to this story. So she was completely innocent. So it's a really sympathetic portrayal of a woman who's maybe been not treated that sympathetically in throughout history and all the in all the various stories that she's appeared in you know sometimes she's a seductress she's blamed for 
all of this suffering. So I think those, those kind of ideas were obviously sort of ingrained into me from a really young age, this kind of idea of, of looking at the myth from a different perspective, looking at the female characters with the more sympathy. Uh, the Troy myth, though, isn't mentioned in Ariadne particularly. Um, is it something that you go back and do your own version of Troy? Or do you feel this one covers it? Um, well, um, yeah, well, <laughs> I was going to say, then stay tuned for my second book, Troy Does Feature, in, in my second retelling. And I, yeah, I've always been really captivated by the myth of Troy. I've always wanted to reimagine part of it, yeah. So you're doing a second retelling. Uh, mm-hmm. who, who is the central character in that? Is it Helen? Um, no, Helen plays a role in it, but no, the central character is actually Electra, who is the daughter of Agamemnon, who's the uh, the kind of leader of the Greek army. Oh, I will. Uh, I will look forward to it. Um, <laughs> what's your second choice? Um, okay, so second choice. So another one from um, from from my childhood is Anne of Green Gables. So a really um, kind of classic bit of children's literature. And um, so Anne of Green Gables is uh, by Lucy Maud Montgomery and it tells the story of an 11 year old orphan girl who's adopted by error, this very lucky error, by these two um, sort of older siblings, Matthew and Marilla Cuthbert, who lead this very narrow, very sort of boring kind of life and Anne brings um, love, she brings this like joy and colour and all of this imagination into their world. Um, and this is a book, I think I got it for my, I think it was my ninth or my tenth birthday. And I remember when I got to the end of it, I turned back to the first page immediately and I just read the whole thing cover to cover again. It was that good that you loved it that much. <laughs> I did. I really, really did. And I think I probably read it at least once a year. Is it the book that sort of ignited your passion for reading or were you all already a big reader by that point? And as already a big reader, it probably, it was probably the first book that, um, that I kind of like kept coming back to, I think. And whenever I read it, I'm always... I'm always amazed by how evocative and lyrical the writing is because it is a children's book, um, but it's it's like reading poetry in some places. You know, she creates this this world. Her, like the descriptions of nature are so transporting and so just absolutely gorgeous and like wildly imaginative. So when Matthew first picks Anne up from the station. Um, expecting a boy to help on the farm and, and it's this girl this little red-headed girl and she's chattering in the carriage ride home and she's talking about how it would be lovely to sleep in a wild cherry tree that it would be like marble halls and it's just this really this it's it's very whimsical it's like a slice of fancy and um, but I just loved it and I think that it's kind of had an influence on the writing style that um, the kind of voice that I write in um, definitely so it's definitely been very influential on me. Did it inspire you to write then? Yeah I think it's I think it's definitely a book that did um, inspire me to write and um, like not the I, I'm going to get on to one that really got me to write a lot but 
I think what's another thing that was really good about this novel is that it's adventure, it's like, it's a series of adventures that she has. So she, she gets into all kinds of scrapes, she dyes her hair green, and um, she goes rafting and she gets stranded on this bridge in peril. Um, she um, accidentally gets her friend drunk thinking that she's giving her blackcurrant cordial and it's actually wine. Um, so she gets into all these like adventures, but it's, it's adventure stories about a girl. And I think that was really significant for me because I've read lots of um, adventure stories where it was kind of boys doing everything. And um, so I think the fact that Anne is a female character, that Anne is a reader and Anne is a writer as well. She writes stories and you go through the writing process with Anne. So she writes all these kind of ridiculous, like fantastical things that you do write when you're younger that are really melodramatic and over the top. And then she refines her style over time. So it's it's really, it's really good coming back and reading it as a writer. I think it's it gives you a lot of hope and encouragement and um, inspiration. And she's a really good role model because she is very ambitious, she's very creative, she's very determined. And um, so I think it, I think it is a really good book, especially for young girls to read. And she's not obsessed with boys. There's like a central romantic relationship with Gilbert Blythe, but she spends most of the book not talking to him because she hates him. So it's about her female friendships and the other kind of relationships that she forms. So she's like, she's a girl who's not that interested in boys. Like it's not all about romance. It's about her and her interior life and her ambitions. It's um, the first in quite a, a series of books, uh, some which feature Anne as a central character and some where she's just referenced. Did you read the rest of the series? Yeah, I've read them all. So yes, I really love them all. So I picked I picked the first one because I thought, you know, that's the one that really got me, obviously got me into the series. Um, but I think like what an incredible feat for Lucy Maud Montgomery, because I think all the books in the series are as good as each other, to be honest. And I think there's about 10 of them in total. Um, and it takes you right up to her daughter, Rilla, in the First World War. So it takes a really different tone. It becomes like much darker and more tragic um, by the final one, Rilla of Ingleside. But I think they're all still absolutely brilliant books. Have you read The Blythes Are Quoted, which was only released in 2009? No, because I only just found out about that. And um, so it's definitely on my list to read next. Yes, yeah, so it was, um, she died, I think, in the 40s. So this is 60 years after she, di she died. Do, do you think, is there anything of yours that you can see maybe lasting? Have you got hidden manuscripts somewhere? That, that maybe someday somebody will publish after your death? No, <laughs> I do not. Um, Ariadne is the first book that I've written to completion um, and I have not hung on to any earlier writing, I've got to say. So I don't think anybody's going to uncover something after I die. Um, what's your next choice? Right, so my next choice is Interview with the Vampire. Um, so this is a novel, I think it was published in the 1970s, I think, um, by Anne Rice. And um, it follows the story of Louis, who is this very morbid plantation owner in New Orleans in the 1700s, I think it's 1795 that it's set. Um, his brother dies in this kind of religious frenzy 
And Louis then plunged into grief. Um, he's consumed with guilt and despair and this like sense of nihilism that leads him to be seduced by this charismatic vampire Lestat, who leads him into an eternity of damnation as a vampire. This book, um, for me, it really evokes my teenagers in the 90s, Sunday afternoons, listening to The Cure, reading Interview with a Vampire, and then writing reams and reams of my own vampire fan fiction, um, which I'm really glad to say did not survive, has not seen the light of day. Um, but this is the book that I would say really inspired me to write. Did you ever show anyone your uh, vampire fan fiction? Yeah, so my best friend and I were both obsessed with it. So I really loved Louie. She really loved Lestat. We used to write our own stories featuring them and then read them aloud to each other um, all the time. So I'll have to ask Fiona if any of hers have, have been kept. I suspect not. And and what was your early feedback uh, as a writer from her? Did, uh, did you get rave reviews? Yeah, well, we were both very encouraging and supportive of each other, probably too much so given the quality <laughs> of what we were producing. Um, but it definitely, I, I thought I was going to be a writer. I thought I was going to be a writer of vampire stories. Um, and, and this was really like my introduction to Gothic literature. So it opened up this whole new world of different types of, of stories to read, um, for which I'll always be grateful. Um, and I think this book is so influential generally, not just on me. Like, I don't think we would have Buffy the Vampire Slayer if we didn't have Interview the Vampire. I don't think the character of Angel could exist without the character of Louis. This kind of all the way through, he's wrestling with this question of good versus evil. And um, is he is he capable of goodness um, in, you know, because of his vampiric nature? Um, and I read this book entirely uncritically. You know, as a teenager, I just loved the book and I didn't really analyse why I loved it or what was going on. So when I was I was like making notes ready for this, I looked up, I looked into it a bit more and I found out that Anne Rice actually wrote it um, when she was grieving for her own daughter. So her daughter died when she was only six years old. And when you read it again, knowing that you can see this like obsession with can God exist? And if God exists, how can he allow this kind of suffering to go on? And um, this melancholy that really infuses the book, which I think just makes it just an amazing, amazing book to read. Um, but I think you can really see it. And especially um, that grief, I think, is embodied in the character of Claudia. So she is a young girl. She's a five-year-old girl that Louis and Lestat make into a vampire. And it's sort of Louis and Lestat are trapped in this really dysfunctional relationship with each other. And it's like they bring a child into their kind of marriage to try and fix it, basically. And of course, it only ends up driving them further apart in the end. Um, and Claudia is just, she's like, as a, as a gothic character, I just think she's perfect. She's, she's grotesque in that she is this, She's a beautiful child. She looks like she looks completely innocent. She's got all of these golden ringlets. She almost seduces people into becoming her victims by playing this helpless, vulnerable girl. And but she is completely predatory. She's got no moral compass. She's never known a human life of any kind. So she is 
it's almost like she was born a vampire because she became one so young. So she is an insatiable huntress. She's a really unnerving, really sinister character. And they're incredibly tragic because she's frozen in a child's body, but her mind grows, you know, she becomes a woman, but she is helpless. She's dependent on Louis and Lestat and she resents them both so badly for what they've done to her, what they've created in her. And that drives her to um, to a, a really terrible rage that, that tears them all apart. Uh, you said you read it when you were a teenager. When, when was that? Is that pre-Buffy? Was it pre the film adaptation? Yes, it, it was. I read it before the film came out. So I, well, so I remember reading it in year seven, actually. I think I would have been 12. So just that I kept on reading it through my teenage years. Because I remember whenever you had silent reading in an English lesson, I'd get out my copy of Interview the Vampire and it was just like the best bit of school, the best bit of the week. Um, so I definitely read it before I saw Buffy. I think it must be before Buffy was made, yeah. Um, and then I got the film one Christmas and I watched, I've watched the film a lot of times, but I came back to that recently as well. Well, my husband and I had booked to go and see it in a, in a ruined abbey um, for this like um, Halloween experience. And then on the night, this is pre-pandemic, it was raining and we didn't go. And now we've had a year of no cinema I just, I can't believe we passed that up. I would go and watch anything in a ruined abbey in the rain right now if I could go and see a film. Um, but we didn't go. But So we watched the film at home instead. We were like, we'll stay in right time, we'll watch it. And it's much better than I remember. But I think if you watch the film of a book that you love and that you can practically recite by heart, all you see is like, oh no, that wasn't in the book. They've done that differently. Why is Brad Pitt in this film? You know, you just, I think he's really good, but at the time, I was just like, no, he's completely wrong. He's not Louis. Um, yeah, I didn't, didn't, I didn't like any of it. But I think actually the film really stands up. I think the film's great, but not as good as the book. And uh, I ask this of everyone, um, but uh, film production always makes me think, is there a film production in the works for Ariadne? Is there a TV option? Where are we at? Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's out um, on submission, so if anybody wants to option it, we would be very glad. <laughs> um, but at the moment, there's no news on that, no. And do you have a sort of dream or fantasy cast that you might you can see in it? Did you picture an actress whilst you were writing at Ariadne? Or no, I'm terrible at that. That's people have asked me that, and I just I have no idea who would who would make them who'd make a good Ariadne or any of them. Um, I think when I was writing Phaedra, I thought a little bit of um, Maisie Williamson, Aria in Game of Thrones. She has that kind of vibe for me, but that that's as close as I got to dream casting. I just, I can't, I can't do it. What's your next choice? Okay, so next choice is um, by my, I think I'm going to say like my favourite author in the world. This is Anybody Out There by Marion Keyes. Um, so... This novel, it's one of her novels featuring one of the Walsh sisters. So she's got this, um, she's got a fictional family, the Walsh family, and there's five sisters. Anybody out there follows the story of Anna, the second youngest of the Walsh sisters. And it opens with Anna recovering back at home in Ireland, back in the family home, um, from we don't know what, but she has this host of terrible injuries. 
and she's desperate to get in touch with her husband but she can't tell anyone that she's trying to call him she's trying to call him in secret so we don't know what's happened to her we don't know how she's got these injuries and we don't know where her husband is and um how this is how this has come about and um, she recovers enough to go back to new york city where she lives to try and find him and the novel follows her through these stages of trauma and um, so she's like she's in complete denial um, and we see her getting angry we see her bargaining to try and find some kind of answers we see her in total despair and um, so it's really it's really heartbreaking and it's incredibly suspenseful. Like the moment in Revelation where you find out what's actually happened to her and what's actually happened with Aiden, the husband, I gasped when I got to it. I, like, I didn't see it coming. I was just, I was completely like, I was gripped by it. Um, but Marion Keyes is, is a really, is, she's a really comical writer as well. So a lot of this book is absolutely hilarious. And I just, I think it's, incredible to be the kind of writer who can balance comedy and tragedy like that in a novel who could where you're reading it you know you laugh and you cry and um, both like you know completely in the grips of both of those emotions and I think that about Marion Keyes herself as well so she's done um like she did a series of writing masterclasses um on Instagram and YouTube I think over the over lockdown and she's just incredibly inspirational because she is so funny and she's so warm and you know you feel when you watch her like she could just like she's your best friend you know she's really engaging but she's had terrible struggles um, so she, and she talks about it really openly like alcoholism and really awful depression and um, that she has she has battled for decades and written I think it's like 22 novels I've read them all loads of times um, so I think I find her, I've always found her incredibly inspirational. So, you know, when I was in my twenties and I knew I wanted to write and I didn't know what I wanted to write or how to write it, I just, I drew a lot of hope from what Marion Keyes said about writing and kind of thought, you know, she's overcome all of these things and been able to write. I'm not overcoming anything like that. Surely I can pull myself together and write something too. Um, so yeah I find her just an incredible role model um but I don't think she always gets treated kind of critically with the respect that she deserves so I know she's spoken about being reviewed and um, so Rachel Holiday so I was kind of I don't know whether she's Rachel Holiday or anybody out there if I chose anybody out there um because I think I kind of it's my favorite it's just it's just my favorite of her books but Rachel Holiday is all about addiction and I know she said that got reviewed and described as forgettable froth because it's it's by a woman about a woman and it has a pink cover and I just think you know you get sort of I think she and other writers like they get sidelined and, and derided as like well this is women's fiction and um, it's not important things that men write and that you know men are going to want to read about um, it's just like the review said forgettable froth and Jodie Pickle tweeted something about this at the weekend about how when women write about families, it's just um, that's what, that's just that's just you know women's interest. But when a man writes about a family, oh, that's searing and brave and courageous. And um, so I just think you know why hasn't Marion Keys like won every single writing award in the world? And um, she's incredible. But I think some people would just say, 
oh, that's chiclet, which, by the way, can we ban that term immediately? It's awful. But I think that's what some people think. I hate that term as well. I'm completely with you. Uh, people like, I mean, Jodie Pico herself, Marion Keys, uh, they are on a par if not better than some male writers out there who get treated as sort of literary fiction and are talked about for things like the booker. And actually, you're right, the only difference is is the way they're marketed, really. Um, And this whole women's fiction, uh, in air quotes, it's it's ridiculous. I think once you start calling them contemporary fiction, you realise that actually it stacks up against John Boyne, Patrick Gale, all of those books, which are, I mean, I love them both as well, well but yeah. they are, they're on a par. They are the same level. And I think um, I think more people should, should read Marion Keyes, particularly. I, I love her writing as well. Uh, you said about Rachel's Holiday, um, mm. and a few other people have picked Rachel's Holiday um, when we've we've done this. Uh, yeah. But what what was it about anybody out there um, above all of the others that made you pick that one? Yeah, it was really difficult because I think I could probably have picked any of them. I mean, I've been reading Marion Keyes books for you know like over twenty years, and um. So I was really thinking, well, which which one have I gone back to the most? And I think anybody out there, I found it the most powerfully moving. And I think there's that kind of mystery and suspense element that means it's completely gripping. But when I'm reading a suspense novel, like I used to love Agatha Christie, but I used to read the last page first because I couldn't bear to read an entire book not knowing who the murderer was. Um, I just couldn't, I couldn't cope with that kind of like delayed gratification. So the suspense element of it meant I probably raced through the first bit. So then when I go back, then then I can appreciate, and I have done so many times, all the clues that she puts in, all the hints and like how skillfully it's all woven together so that you, well, I didn't see that revelation coming, somebody else might have done, um, but but I didn't. Um, And... I think as well in anybody out there, I think she gets the female friendship between Anna and her best friend Jackie is just this absolutely brilliant portrayal of what really good supportive female friendship is. Um, And it's hilarious that, so Jackie gets involved in this kind of um, relationship with one of the real men, which are all these blokes who wear like leather trousers and listen to Led Zeppelin. Um, and there's this like hilarious email exchange where Anna's mum is emailing her saying, I've heard that um, Jackie and I can't remember what it's called, Joey, um, were playing Scrabble and he put a Scrabble letter down his pants and she went right in there afterwards to get it. And it's just, it's absolutely, um, it's so funny. And I think like balancing that against the absolute horror of what's happened to Anna, you just get the full range and complexity of human emotion and what life is like that you can, these terrible things can happen, but you can still um, kind of, there's still these kind of moments of comedy and moments of lightness and moments of enjoyment in her life. Um, and she has she has a job that she's like a makeup marketer. And again, I think you would people would just be like, oh, it's just it's just a book about somebody who sells makeup. Again, like that's just for women. Um, but I think 
I just I think that there's there's something about that as well I just think um you know women are kind of mocked for having these like superficial interests so oh you know um characters in this novel they're obsessed with shoes they're obsessed with makeup they're obsessed with clothes it's so superficial it's so trivial but if women don't choose not to participate in that then they're derided in another way aren't they kind of are they so boring or you know and um, so ugly if you reject feminine norms so I think that there's there's so much in these novels as well um, that you can that to talk about and think about. I just I just think it's so good. Uh, you mentioned that it was uh, featuring one of the Walsh sisters. She's written five novels, um, yeah. and they're not they're not a series of novels as such. You can read them as standalones. Yeah, but they do have this sort of cast of characters that reappear. Obviously, the family of the Walshes are there. Um, are you tempted to ever do that? Are you writing about characters that appear in Ariadne that then might appear in your next book? Yeah, I mean, you definitely do that with Greek myth because all the stories um, intersect um, so many times and you have like family trees and all of these connections. So really like anybody who doesn't die will probably be in another novel. Wonderful. Uh, I look forward to it. What is your next choice? And um, so next choice is um, is the book that I'll always say to people, this is my favourite book of all time. And um, this is The Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver. So this novel is, I'm not sure when it was written actually, but it's set in 1959 and it follows an evangelical Baptist family who go to the Belgian Congo and they go as missionaries. So the father is a minister He's this very tyrannical, very inflexible, arrogant man. And he's determined to impose his version of Christianity and what he sees as civilization on what he thinks is this completely savage and barbaric place. And in fact, what he can't understand is that this is a place that doesn't need him, doesn't need his message, doesn't need his family. And it's narrated by his wife, Oliana, and their four daughters. And um, so it's, it's multiple narrators that alternate between their perspectives. And it's a really powerful range of voices to explore. They're all such different characters. So Oleana is kind of, um, you know, she's the, she's the victim really of an abusive marriage. She's completely downtrodden. She's, she's come to the Congo with her husband because she doesn't know how to stand up to him. And she's brought her family to this place that actually poses a huge danger to them because it was at a time it's just on the brink of this political turmoil and um, which is going to cause chaos through the novel and I think you feel such compassion for these characters so you've got um, the four daughters and um, the eldest is Rachel and she is spoiled she is bratty she is racist she's really hard to like I mean you don't like her um, but you do feel pity for the situation that she's been put, put into. And I think her the inclusion of this kind of character, I think, is really interesting. I think it takes incredible skill to have a narrator who is so completely dislikable that makes you feel some kind of compassion for them. And um, then you've got these twins, Leah and Ada. And Leah is very headstrong, very forthright. She's very brave and bold. And she really adapts to life. Um, in Africa the best of all of them because 
she learns about where they are and she respects the culture that they've come into and nature um, as well, because they're so at the mercy of the forces of nature where they're living. Um, her twin, Ada, is hemiplegic. She's mute. She, she drags the one side of her body along. Um, she really, she struggles to communicate, but she's got this incredibly rich interior life and this very kind of complex way of looking at the world. And then you've got Ruth May, who's the youngest, who's, who's like the baby of the family. Um, so I think this range of voices just keeps the novel so fascinating, so interesting. I mean, you just, you cannot put it down. I can't remember when I first read this book. I think probably because I've read it so many times, it doesn't, it, I can't separate all the different places that I've read it and all the different ages I've been when I've read it, but I just come back to it over and over again. And is that, is it the voices, the distinct voices that make it your favourite? It's that. And then I think, like um, I touched on, the presence of nature in this book, it's almost like it's another character itself. Um, it's so beautiful. The world in The Poisonless Bible is just rendered so vividly and um, so incredibly powerfully. Um, but it's also, it's, it's, it's so it's frightening. So there's like this um there's an invasion of ants into the village and they sweep through and they devour everything in their path. And the villagers have to, they just have to flee, they have to get to water, they have to get away. And it says, you know, if you've left the chickens in the hen house, if you've left a baby in a crib, you'll come back to nothing but bones. But this is how people live. They they live in harmony with nature. It says, you know, you get out of the way, you let the ants go through. And then later you're just grateful for the house cleaning. So um, nature in the novel is, um, it, yeah, it, it, it's like I said, it's like it's almost another character. It, it's just, it's so, if, if you, we've just had a year where I haven't been able to go anywhere. If you want to travel to somewhere you've never been, pick up this book because it takes you to somewhere absolutely fantastical. There are just uh, two point of view characters in Ariadne. You've got Ariadne yeah. herself and her sister, Phaedra. Uh, how did you find it writing two different viewpoints? Did you struggle to capture the voices and make them distinct or was it something you found easy? Yeah, it's something I'm really drawn to in books, actually. I always like multiple narrators. Um, but Ariadne started out in the first draft, it was single viewpoint, it was only Ariadne. Um, and it was it was in a rewrite that I thought, well, and in discussion with my agent as well, that we thought, you know, Phaedra's story, she's got such a good story um, in Greek mythology, but it doesn't really work if she doesn't tell it herself, because so much of it is about what's happening to her, um, kind of in her own head, I suppose. It's, um, it's, she has to give you her side of the story to really understand it. I think she's quite a misunderstood, misrepresented character in Greek mythology. Um, she's quite often um, sort of notorious in Greek mythology for propagating this false rape allegation that brings about disaster. And that was absolutely not the story that I wanted to tell. So it was, so it kind of became important to me in the rewriting that no, Phaedra's is going to tell her own story and we're going to hear how it really happened for her rather than the kind of version of her that exists 
Yeah, because without uh, without spoilers, um, and some people may know the myths anyway. Yeah, you do choose to uh, go down a slightly different route, and she doesn't accuse. Uh, she doesn't make this false accusation of rape. Yeah. it's a misunderstanding. Yeah. Um, how did you how did you feel about that? Because obviously, in so much of the canon, it is it is a accusation um but you've gone a, you've gone a much more oblique way were you were you comfortable sort of detracting from the, the canon I'm, I'm putting that in air quotes <laughs> <laughs> yeah well I mean a lot more comfortable doing that than I would have been writing stories had a false rape allegation so I just think that that version of the story serves a much more misogynistic narrative you know where actually I think the belief that false rape allegations exist is is so much higher than the actual incidents of them happening. I think people think it's something that happens and um, victims are treated as though they are making things up when in fact it is such an unlikely occurrence that, that women do lie about it. it. It just, it doesn't happen like that. And so I absolutely couldn't have written that. You know, I couldn't have had Phaedra in there as a character if that was the story that I had to tell about her. So I felt that for the narrative I was telling and the kind of the message that I wanted my book to have, that telling her story in a different light actually was, was what I needed to do. Have you had any responses on that point or on any of the, the book from sort of experts in, in Greek myth? And, and have you had any feedback at all from that? Yeah, so far I've had kind of grateful feedback on what I did with Phaedra's story. I've had people say, um, I was worried about reading her story because I was worried about the aspect of it. So they said they really liked how it's handled in the book and how that how it differs from the traditional narrative. I mean, I'm sure that negative pushback is is imminent, <laughs> but I haven't had any yet. That's good. I only um, I didn't know the story of Phaedra uh, prior to this, and uh, I what your book made me do was sort of go onto the internet and actually go. Well, how much of this yeah. is true? I said, I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> um, but how much of this is sort of established parts of the myth or how much of it is? So I, I was quite surprised. So for me, Phaedra's story is, is not a false accusation because the first time I've read it is in, is in your story. And so that's my first sort of um, exposure to it, as it were. Yeah. And I think great. a lot of people, a lot of people will probably have that same uh, view as well so hopefully it might it might start to change her story a bit yeah I hope so and I just I think as well you know if you're going to do a, a retelling there is I mean what kind of value is there in telling things exactly the way that they've always been told I think you know you, you only you only want to pick these these up if they're going to offer you something new and different so I did I think as well as well like I did worry when I was first writing um I kind of pictured people like classicists angry classicists reading it and then sending me like nasty letters but actually I think you know nobody just wants to read the exact same thing again and I think that you know if you've got something else to say then you should just be bold enough to say it I think I would say that to anyone who's thinking of writing them just just go ahead and do it what's your next choice uh, so next choice is Alias Grace by Margaret Atwood um so this novel it's based it's, it's historical fiction it's based on a real murder case. So a real murder case in the 1840s 
a 16-year-old girl called Grace Marks and a man in his 20s, James McDermott, were convicted of murdering their employer, a man called Thomas Kinnear, and his housekeeper, um, Nancy Montgomery. So those are the real facts of the case. And then Margaret Atwood has woven this story around it. So the story is completely fictional. I think I think all we know is the the kind of the murder happened. These were the people convicted of it. And um, so it's told um, largely through the voice of Grace herself from the penitentiary. Uh, where she's serving her sentence and she is like the ultimate ambiguous narrator so she claims amnesia um, for the murders so even she doesn't seem to know what really took place on the night of the murders so whether you believe that she doesn't know or not depends on you know how you read it um the novel is all divided by these quilting patterns um, so it's almost like the whole book is this patchwork quilt that's being made of different people's impressions of Grace and Grace's account of what happened to her, um, all building up to this terrible crime, this like brutal crime that she's accused of. But she's presenting herself all the while as this very sort of domesticated kind of woman, sort of sewing quilts and all the rest of it. And actually, there's there's a conflict between what it is that she might have done um, and this was a novel that I read because I studied it at A level and I think this is the novel that made me want to be an English teacher which is what I did for 13 years before I started writing so um, I remember Miss Merrick at Notre Dame Sixth Form College um, she introduced us to this book and she had all this lovely curly blonde hair and she was so inspiring and I just thought that's who I want to be in my life I want to be just like Miss Merrick and um, introduce people to books like this because it was like it was like she was performing a magic trick I, I thought you know I read this book and I thought that's an interesting book and then she just kind of unfolded it for us like kicked apart peeled back all of these layers and suddenly you see all of this meaning all of this metaphor in the book that just seemed like something incredible. I just thought, you know, that's what I want to be able to do. When did you decide to stop teaching? Uh, did you do it so that you could write? Um, so, yes, basically, yes. Um, so I, I came out of teaching around the time that I got the book deal um, because, that, yeah, there were two things I couldn't really balance the intensity of. And, and it, that was actually just before the pandemic hit. So teaching's got a lot more intense since then. And I do feel grateful that all I had to do was homeschool my own children and not anybody else's. Um, so that really was bad enough. Um, so yeah, so I did, so I did, I did come out of teaching um, in order to be able to concentrate on writing. Had you written the first draft and then got the book deal or was it done on a, uh, a proposal? No, I wrote the whole, yeah, I wrote the whole first draft while I was still working. Yeah. So that's quite a, a struggle. How long did that take? Well, not that long. So um, it was, I wrote the novel um, as, as a New Year's resolution, actually. And um, so I started it on January the 5th in 2019. And I, um, I was about halfway through um, in like May, June time. And then a writer on Twitter called Amy Mason held a charity auction um, to benefit immigrant families together. 
So it's when the news headlines were full of the, um, you know, the child separation, family separation at the borders, at the Mexican border. And it was such a horrifying story. So Amy Mason was holding this literary auction. So she got writers, editors, agents to donate lots to bid on. And I was already following Juliet Mushins, who is now my agent. And I knew what she was the right person to represent me. And she offered as, a, as an auction lot that she would critique the first 50 pages of somebody's novel. So I bid on that. Um, I sent her the first 50 pages and she asked for the full manuscript and I hadn't written the full manuscript. Because <laughs> I thought, you know, this is just a chance to kind of get some feedback from somebody I really admire and it'll kind of tell me whether I've got something worth carrying on with. But then I had an, an agent interested in my work. So I wrote the second half of the draft at like walk speed. Um, we went on holiday to France. Um, 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 my husband and children and my mother-in-law, we all went together. And I was like, right, you two have got the kids. I'm going to spend this holiday writing. So I finished the draft um, as fast as I could because I thought, you know, while, while she's interested, I need to get this to her before, you know, she moves on. So um, I sent it back to her and she offered representation and that was in August. So it had only actually taken nine months to write it. And then together we edited it into a submittable shape. And um, yeah, I got the book deal in November. So it was all kind of happened in less than 12 months. So it was wow. extremely fast. Yeah, that's a, a very impressive uh, timeline. Um, back to Alias Grace and Margaret Atwood as well, actually. Um, it's mm. the fourth of seven novels by Margaret Atwood and she's written them uh, over a significant period of time. So a bit, uh, almost the opposite scale of what you did with Ariadne. She takes um, just three or four years between them. Uh, is that how you think you will write or do you, do you picture yourself as a one novel a year writer? Um, that's what I'm aiming for at the moment and but I mean I think because I don't because writing is my full-time job um that is a luxury that I have to be able to write that quickly I mean I think for me the thought of spending four years on a book sounds like torture because I just think I would be so sick of it by the end of four years um so I really admire people with the tenacity and the determination to um spend that long writing a book um yeah I I definitely see myself as kind of um I think like um I think Stephen King says it in on writing he writes massive books a lot faster than I can but I think he he says you know write a book in a season because after that the characters will start to become stale and I think it's just different writers have different processes I guess um but I think I'm more towards the Stephen King end of the spectrum in terms of that, they're definitely not as fast as he is. And do you have a lot of ideas queued up in your head waiting to be written or will it be a case of when you go to write book three, book four, that you'll just sit down and go, right, what shall I write? Yeah, I have, I have a lot of ideas queued up now. Um, I didn't at first, but I um, after I'd finished drafting my second book this year, um, I had like a little bit of a break while I was waiting to get feedback on it. And that was in November, you know, when everybody writes all Dean NaNoWriMo and tried to write a novel in a month, which I definitely can't do. So I didn't try to write another novel in a month, but I wrote, I tried to write a short story every day. And 
I mean, some of them are absolutely rubbish, but what that did was kind of sparked off lots of different voices in my head and kind of lots of different ideas. So I, yeah, I've got a bank of ideas ready to go now. And just hopefully there will be no more lockdowns and homeschooling so I can actually write Fingers them. crossed. <laughs> Fingers <laughs> crossed. Uh, what is your final choice? Right, so final choice. So Alien Space, like I said, was a book that made me want to be an English teacher. And my final choice, Frankenstein, is the book that I would say made being an English teacher really worthwhile. Um, so it's Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. So a 19th century Gothic classic of literature. Um, so Frankenstein's famously, um, Mary Shelley came up with it in competition on a very rainy holiday with Byron and her husband Percy Shelley to write a ghost story. And um, something I really love about this as a writer is I just I, I wrote down what Mary Shelley said about it. She said at first, I felt that blank incapability of invention, which is the greatest misery of authorship when dull nothing replies to our anxious invocations. And I might get that framed and put above my writing desk to just remind myself that Mary Shelley had writer's block and um, described it as the greatest misery of authorship. And I think that will really cheer me up when I'm stuck. And um, because after that, she had a nightmare in which Frankenstein, the idea for the novel Frankenstein came to her. And then it obviously, has just been one of the greatest novels ever written, countless adaptations and, you know, huge popularity. So, um, so I really love the story of how the novel came to be. Um, it tells the story of Victor Frankenstein, a scientist whose grief when his mother dies drives him to um, transgress moral and scientific boundaries and create life. However, when he does so, he's so horrified by the monster that he produces that he abandons it, um, regretting what he's done and leaving his creation to fend for itself, which it does with quite disastrous consequences. And um, apart from the sort of inspiration of Mary Shelley, what is it about Frankenstein itself and, 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 and his monster that has stayed with you? Um, I mean, so much. So, um, first of all, there's the classical reference in the original title, it's Frankenstein, the modern, modern Prometheus. So I love that this is, this is like a classical story. The, the Prometheus was the Titan who stole fire from the gods and gave it to humanity. And Victor Frankenstein is doing this sort of twisted version of that. He's stealing the power of the gods, um, but it's not to benefit humanity. It's for his own sort of arrogant, self-serving ambition. And it's another really dislikable main character, um, which, again, I think I, I'm always fascinated by novels who have characters, main characters, protagonists, who are so completely awful and irredeemable. Um, I mean, I love it. It's just a, a horror classic. And I think, you know, that the, when he creates the monster and it's that dreary night in November and the dull yellow eye of the creature opens, I, and that's just, it's so evocative, it's so creepy, it's so chilling. It's just, I think, the most magnificent example of, of horror. Um, and I really, I have a huge affection for this novel because I taught it to a year 10 class who 
I did not start out very well with. So they were a class who I used to be really nervous to teach. Like I feel sick. Oh God, I've got your turn and they're awful. Um, and I would never have expected Frankenstein to be the novel to turn that class around, especially because as much as I love it, the first four chapters are incredibly dull. It, I mean, like talk about a slow burn. I think if Mary Shelley was submitting to agents now, she would have to rewrite the opening because it's like it's an a series of letters from the captain, Walton, about this man that he's found at sea. Um, and the class of teenagers are sitting there just like, where's the monster? We know there's a monster. When's there going to be a monster in this novel? Get on with it. Um, but it captivated them. And I think in teaching it to them, that's what gave me such an appreciation of this novel. Because I think a lot of the time people think teenagers need, like, something easily digestible, something bite-sized, something simple. You've got to keep them entertained all the time. And actually, it can be that you teach a novel like Frankenstein to a class of 14 and 15-year-olds, and they love that you are giving them credit that they can grapple with something like this. And they actually, you know, they enjoy the kind of the aspiration, the kind of, I'm reading this classic and I'm understanding it. And I'm exploring all of these themes that it has. And you think Frankenstein, it's got hugely grand themes about where evil comes from, um, whether evil is something innate or evil is something that's created by the world. And the fact that the monster is, is an innocent when it's created and it learns to be evil, it's driven to it, um, by the fact that society, beginning with its creator, rejects it because it's so ugly, because it's so hideous. And it lashes out in vengeance and it, it has no, no way of surviving in the world. And I think on the one hand, you've got these like really grand universal themes of, you know, what is evil? How is evil created? Are we all capable of evil? Is there monstrousness and the capacity for monstrousness inside every human being? Um, but it's also really relatable just in terms of this is a book about loneliness and ostracism. And I think that teenagers especially can relate to it. They, you know, they love to talk about, I think, like the bigger, wider themes in it. But I think they can also really relate to it and have sympathy um, for that character. And um, it's another novel where nature plays such an important role. You know, nature, again, is like another character in Frankenstein, that kind of vast wildness of nature in the novel kind of reflects the wildness within human beings as well, that dichotomy of humans that, um, that they can be good and evil at the same time. And it, it's nature is restorative, but also it's this really terrifying, the, the ending of it takes place in this vast wilderness where nature seems like a really vengeful, cold-hearted um, creation, force rather, as well um there's just so much in it I think I could just, I could I just I loved teaching it I felt like I could never get enough of talking about Frankenstein and everything that's in it and it really brought the class around to me and me around to the class and in fact when I left I baked them all Frankenstein cupcakes I can make little monster cupcakes um, and it all ended on a really good note so it was a novel that really reminded me why I was teaching what I was teaching for when I was reading Frankenstein aloud to a class, I would think sometimes, I can't believe I got paid to do this job. Like here I am reading this brilliant book 
to a class that's like hanging on every word and desperate to find out what's going to happen and desperate to talk about it. Um, and that was amazing. And they came up with a theory. They were quite obsessed with the idea that the whole novel is like a metaphor for repressed homosexuality, that Victor is kind of this, he's almost like a female stereotype. He's, he's always crying and fainting all over the place. Um, and he has really intense friendships with the other male characters, whereas his his love interest, Elizabeth, is quite insipid and he doesn't really like, she doesn't really play much of a role. But he's 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 always talking to his male friends about how passionately he loves them. Um, and they said, well, he's created something that is the sort of um the embodiment of masculinity. He's created something like really, really strong and really, really angry. And that's like um he and they were like, does he hate it so much because he desires it? Because actually it's all about kind of being in the 18th century, not being able to openly be gay which I don't think that's what Mary Shelley was thinking but I loved that that they could that they could kind of put that interpretation on it and they could back it up and I thought I thought it was a really interesting way to look at it. Well that's what's one of the brilliant things about fiction is that the reader can bring their own interpretation to it based on their circumstances and looking back on the 18th century uh, you know it was a very different time and these men behaving in this way certainly there's an element of toxic masculinity involved yeah. um so yeah it's a, it's an interesting take um it's a it's obviously it's quite a well-known horror novel it's often sometimes cited as one of the first science fiction novels yeah. uh, would you ever, and, and while there are some allusions to Greek myth, obviously being the modern Prometheus, it, there yeah. are some similarities. It, it's told in quite a different way and a style. Is there a genre that you would like to write in? You've already told us about your vampire fiction. It, yeah. Maybe is horror something you'd like to explore? Um, I'm really interested in horror. I don't think, I think I'm too much of a coward to let my imagination go to those places. I just started reading Stephen King in lockdown because um, I always thought I was too, I, I wouldn't be able to cope with it. And I did have some quite vivid nightmares um, as a result. So I don't think I could write horror, um, but I am, I am quite drawn to it. You know, maybe one day I'll get the courage to do it. What about contemporary fiction like Marion Keys? Does that appeal at all? Oh, so much. That's that's what I wanted to write. That's all through my twenties. I kept starting like contemporary fiction novels and giving up because I just I just didn't I didn't have it in. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it well. So that's your full seven titles. If I made you pick just one of them as the most important one to you, which one would you pick and why? Mm. Um. Well, I hate that question because it was hard enough to pick seven and then to get seven down to one um, makes me incredibly resentful. Um, but um, I think if I've got to pick one, um, I'm going to pick The Poison of Bible. Uh, I've already said it's my favourite book. I think The Poison of Bible, I mean, I can't say enough things about The Poison of Bible. I think it is like, the platonic ideal of what a book should be and can be. So sometimes when I read a really good book, um, I'm slightly furious because I read it and I think, I'll never write anything that good. Um, and so I'd feel really jealous. But I think for the Poison Wood Bible, it is 
so perfect that there's no point being jealous of it. I think it just exists as like the best example of a novel that there could ever be. So um, yeah, I'll pick that as a novel that everybody should read. And I think it will change your life if you haven't read it, do. And you've already told us uh, that Electra is being uh, worked on as book two. Yeah. And I think you said that the draft, first draft was, was it done? The second draft is done. I've second just draft is done. My publishers this week, so yeah. So, so tell us what is next. Uh, obviously, the sort of maybe further edits on that, getting ready for publication. But book three is that in the pipeline? Yeah, I'm actually really excited um, to get going on book three. So all the all the while that I've been finishing off book two, I've been really eager. So, but I, I can't juggle two projects at the same time. I, I can't, I'm absolutely not capable of it. Um, so yes, I'm very enthusiastic to start drafting book two as soon, oh, sorry, book three rather, um, as soon as I can, which I can now. So, I mean, I might start after this conversation. Are you, are you going to tell us anything about it or is it a, is it a top secret? Yeah, it is definitely top secret. I don't dare say anything about it because if it doesn't go well, and it ends up being something completely different. I wouldn't want this to exist to, to taunt me. <laughs> well, Jennifer Saint, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. My guest on this episode of Shelf Life was Jennifer Saint, and her debut novel, Ariadne, is available to order now in hardback at birthsbooks.co.uk. Join me again next time when another guest will be exploring their shelf life.